Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen... The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. Wow. Marga Hoek. Oh my gosh. Uh, world changer. Just, uh, I mean, that was a really impressive show. Uh, we talked about her new book, Tech for Good. Imagine solving the world's greatest challenges. She's a conscious capitalist, uh, three-time CEO, chair and board member. Has done just massive businesses in Europe. Uh, coined the slogan business for good in 2014. But this person is just someone you got to listen to. Uh, stay tuned. Hope you enjoy. Guys, welcome to today's episode of The Greatest Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazade. And boy, do we have a special guest. Marga Hoek is in the house. What's up, Marga? Hi. Nice to be with you here, Darius. Oh, my gosh. Well, good evening to you. It's like, what is it, like six or seven at night your time? Maybe I'm even early there. Is it it dinner time? It was already a long day. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll, I'll be your nightcap. Oh, that sounds good. That sounds good. So you have to be, you may have to make it fun, huh? This time of the day, I deserve some fun. You know, um, I, I was yesterday. I, uh, I don't know. Have you heard, heard of the book, um, uh, Unreasonable Hospitality by uh, Will Gallard? I have heard. I haven't read it. So I interviewed him yesterday and he was sick. He, he has a, like a, like a, a three-year-old and an eight-month-old and he was like kind of had the sniffles. And, he, and at the end of the show, I said, so what I said, so what do you think? He's like, man. I was not feeling good, but you, you have a lot of energy, Darius. And I was like, all right, well, that, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> well done. So, so I'm going to be like a cap. I'm going to be like a double espresso before you go to bed. Oh, so, great. Just... <laughs> Fine. Also... Um, perfect. Hey, do you mind if I do a little bit of housekeeping and then we'll get started? Oh, go ahead. Perfect. Well, hey, for listeners who are new to the show, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. People living their passions and those creating greatness in the world and doing so despite the odds. And Marga here is neither short of passion or greatness. So I stumbled upon uh, Marga online. And as you all know, I'm a conscious capitalist. I'm all about that we can do great by doing good. And I saw that you know she has a slogan that she coined, business for good. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I start <laughs> digging in more and more. And I'm like, I want to meet this person. And as you all know, this is my favorite, favorite way to to meet amazing humans is leveraging the show. And so here we are. We asked her to come on the show. She was so gracious to get her team to get involved and to come on the show. And just very grateful to have you here, Margaret. Thank you for coming well, on the show. Sure. And uh, well, it's great to do to hear that you did some background research, huh? <laughs> I, I, I always want to make sure that that that, that you're you're not gonna come on here and, and do do bad. So lots of doing good going on. Um, so for those of you that are not familiar with Margaret, she's a three-time CEO and chair, uh, a board member as well. Recognized by Thinkers 50 for her global management thinking. She coined this, she coined the slogan business for good in 2014 and has written some uh, award-winning books, new economy business, the trillion dollar shift 
And we're here to talk actually about her new book, Tech for Good. Imagine solving the world's greatest challenges, which comes out on November 29th of this year. But before we go there, Marga, I would love if you wouldn't mind giving our audience a little bit of your, of your origin story. You know, how did you get to where you got to? I know you didn't just wake up and start CEOing and winning awards and coining slogans. But yeah, if you don't mind, no, no, give, no, give no. us some of your background. Yeah. So originally I was um, a three-time CEO. I always had an eagerness to lead, to lead a company, you know, to, to, to have to have a vision and then to, you know, to have leadership and take people along to achieve something good. And those CEO roles were in and around real estate, construction sector and all that. And you could say that was, if you will, the first phase of my professional life. And in that role, it, it struck me that, you know, you employ quite a lot of people. You, you create buildings that hopefully are there to last for a while. And then often they look terrible or they're actually not good mm. for the surroundings or not good for the people, or they're made by all kinds of people outside their company walls. And then I got so inspired and motivated to think, how can I do that differently? I want to really innovate this sector, starting with my own company. And so I started to create, you know, innovative, sustainable business cases, which I didn't think um, at it to be so innovative or, or, you know, groundbreaking. It was just, you know, business sense to me at the time. But it was, for instance, setting up companies that took the waste, as we called it back then, from the construction side and made it circular and brought it back. And then, you know, expanding that business to other companies, not only ourselves, it was about, you know, creating buildings that were actually energy positive and not a little bit less bad, but just broke through the, the zero point and actually really created value, made a lot of sense of me, uh, to me. And also the company thrived because of it because we worked ourselves out of price competitive situations. We got other clients, we got a higher, steeper growth and so on and more motivated people and so on and so forth. And as a result, at a certain point, I was asked to set up the Dutch Sustainable Business Association, which was an overarching uh, association uh, over, I think, 275 companies, small, mid-sized, large listed uh, to do the, um, the negotiations with governments as to see that we have different policies because actually, you know, all those laws, regulations, tax systems were holding us back as sustainable entrepreneurs rather than, you know, stimulating us forward. So worked a lot of years on working uh, to do that and also set up the Sustainable Science Association alongside. And in that period of time, I felt very privileged to oversee so many, if you will, pieces of the puzzle. I mean, mm -hmm. if you run one company, you know, you have one big piece, part of the puzzle and maybe some surrounding pieces, but you can't oversee, you know, overarching different business sectors and different worlds. So I thought I'm so privileged. Why don't I not only, you know, write in the newspapers and the magazines and all that, but bring it to a book and, and, you know, compiling my, my knowledge and my vision. And the reason why I found it so important is because it became my mission to show that business for good is good business. I should just refer to that slogan. Instead of, you know, you can do your business, but becoming sustainable will cost you in whatever shape or form. And, I, and that wasn't true at that time. It's not true at this time. And it's definitely not true in the future. So for, that's my mission, to show that business for good can be good business. For that, I wrote books. And once I phase out of my CEO roles and handy over the realm for that and, you know, started to do non-executive roles, that continued to be my journey and my mission to demonstrate how that can be done and how we can, you know, go back to the drawing board and invent completely different business models or improve the current business, but much more sustainable. Uh, and have a good business uh, at the same time. So let me ask a question. So, I mean, obviously, when I look in your background, I, I have a couple questions, actually. But the first one is, you know, you, you know, you, you, it sounds like you started this coming from a development position doing like large scale development. And then that even turned into this, this circular economy type of role with some of the other businesses. Did you always have like an affinity for that? Or was it something that just like kind of as you learned about it, you got more interested in it? 
I think I always had that. You know, uh, if you if you look at my upbringing, um, my my father was a business person, my mother was a social worker, so probably some hybrid form, <laughs> if you will. Uh, and my grandfather, you know, he was, you know, uh, very remarkable in the resistance in the war and all that. So I think, you know, I grew up with um, a sense of responsibility for everything that's around you, both in terms of people as well as in terms of the planet. And my grandfather always told me, you know, leadership is a privilege mm -hmm. and it comes with a huge amount of responsibility. And that sentence you can still read sometimes in the forewords of my books. And that's just a conviction I have. It's a thing I find really important. And so I think it was natural for me to find my way in business this way. Yeah, that's interesting. So just so you know, my dad was a business person and my mother was a social worker as well. Really? So we yep. have that in common then. Yeah, so then you let's... relate to that. Yeah, it's it's it, yeah 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 it's very interesting because my dad was a hard my father's Persian he's from Iran my mother is American, really? Italian American but she's a hard you know my mother's therapist my father is a hardcore capitalist and uh, I never I actually never put two and two together that that there's a lot of I, for me the way it shows up <clears throat> is in like coaching and in trying to like bring out the best in people and leveraging like connecting with them and understanding them which would be my mother's skill set and then and then i have this part of me that's like i call it having sharp teeth which is like yeah. be careful i'll bite your face off <laughs> if you're on the wrong side if, yeah. you, if, you give, if you give me a good reason like you're gonna like uh, the, these teeth hurt <laughs> you know and, and i'm not afraid to bite and so uh that's kind of both sides but i think there's, there's no to have both sides and equally, you know, to have like the IQ and the EQ, if you will. But also we have to be both tough and uh, empathetic. Yeah. Uh, I what think because we need all those sides uh, in leadership as well as entrepreneurship. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and supply and demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius Mishazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now, and let me tell you, They've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stop me from fully enjoying the little things in life, from canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose itchy, watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user 
for many, many years now. And let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear uses directed. Well, so so with your with that being the case, um, when you started, you know, and and this is, I guess, uh, uh, more of a geographic question, if you will. My sense, and I live in the United States, I and 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 I moved. I live in Austin, Texas, and Texas is. Uh, an interesting place, especially Austin, Texas. Um, it's the, the, it's a very liberal city and a conservative state. Um, I came here from San Francisco, which many people, you may agree or disagree with this, they call it the most European city in the United States, right? So there's an ethos yeah. in San Francisco of sustainability and of, you know, conscious capitalism and being forward thinking and protecting the planet and, you know, these these this perspective that I do not believe is shared by most of the United States. I think in the United States, there's even a culture war around some of this stuff. But I feel like in Europe, it's it's much more accepted that we should be doing these types of things you're talking about. And I'm not talking about conscious capitalism as much as I am talking about environmental protection and, and having a perspective around environmentalism. D- did you feel like that? I mean, have you noticed that? And what, what is your perspective on how that, that is, I guess, approached from a European standpoint as opposed to maybe other parts of the world? Yeah. So I think it's two, a couple of layers. Uh, so I'm from the Netherlands, which is a small country. Nobody else speaks Dutch, you know. Um, we are a trade country. We were used to, you know, go over the world because the country is very small. So we're very orientated. Out, or orientation is outside the country. I think that helps because you have naturally a curious mindset to other places in the world and you're used to adapting yourself, not only in terms of language, but also in terms of the wider culture to adapt yourself, to be able to work with all kinds of people around the globe. That is in, in, in its concept, something Dutch, and it's something that I personally have very strong. Then in terms of Europe, uh, yes, I think it has been very forward-looking if you compare to other parts of the world. But equally, I think it's important to acknowledge every geography in the world for its characteristics. And to give you an example, the other day I was talking uh, to an American bank and we were talking about, you know, how do things go in terms of ESG in the States as opposed to Europe. And then I made a joke but everybody was really enjoying that joke because I said, you know, on the one hand in Europe, you know, we have a lot of regulation laws, uh, new obligations that all come out of Brussels to be imposed on, on business and the financial sector, which is great, but it's a backdoor. It's as to ensure that nobody does things wrong and that a certain movement is being stimulated, but I see it as a backdoor. But it's not a front door. And if I look at the US, for instance, they would ask the question, okay, great, all these new regulations and every rules and disclosure and reporting and all that, that is being, you know, meant to push business forward. But where are the deals? The US is much better in saying, okay, we have this ESG, but what deals are we going to make because of it? So the business part is stronger in the US. The Europe is much more orientated towards getting that back door closed and the US in a way is more about the front door and we need the combination of both yeah I think that Europe and US of course and we have different parts of the world with even other characteristics yeah I I think that there's a healthy tension around commercialization of the world and but but there being this responsibility and so I'm you know we talked about this before the show I'm a trained conscious capitalism this idea of doing great while doing good, right? And and I think that's kind of what you're getting at, which is like, hey, like business can be a, a force for good, right? Absolutely. And, and if we 
they start and I'm I, I have I'm like a financial person, right? Like my my I studied accounting in in, in college, but like numbers are I love numbers because they you know kind of binary. And so I always I actually look at this from a liability and asset perspective, and and I look at it from an income statement. And I and the way I describe it to people sometimes is I'll say, look, I'll use an example of if I'm if I'm drilling for oil, if I'm drilling for oil. And I find and I hit a spot where I can pull oil out of the ground. That is an asset. I'm creating a revenue potentially. Assuming, and, and, the, and I'll get to like if I don't do it well, if I do it eff- effectively, efficiently, if I don't, if I don't spill any oil, and if the regulation says if I do spill oil, there's an actual expense that's been allocated at that moment, right? Because someone's paying for that at some point, somewhere, at some time. Some point in time, yeah. And my belief as a conscious capitalism, as a conscious capitalist, is that when you believe in like stakeholder theory, is that when that drop of oil hits the water, there's an expense that you need to recognize because someone's going to pay for it. And that I believe that when we purely just look at this from a capitalistic perspective and don't, and we'll use the example of a big oil spill that no one does anything about, then you're essentially letting people have an expense and not pay for that expense. And that when we start thinking about, well, what, how does that affect the environment? What is, downstream effect does that have? That we are either A, recognizing the liability that's being created, or we're not. And I just think it's a more like honest and holistic view to say, like, when that happens, who's paying that expense? And if I'm winning the, reaping the reward from an income and asset perspective, that I can't ignore the liability and the expense. What do you, what do you think about that? Well, you touched uh, when you were talking upon what we now still call, unfortunately, externalities. So those are all the costs that are related to taking things from the earth that, of course, have a value. Otherwise, nobody would take them out. But then taking them out is for free, which is actually a crazy concept. And then all the pollution is also more or less for free. But, you know, the price comes to someone sometime somewhere. And I'm a part of the Global Business Commission, and we calculated um, a while ago because we wanted to know, you know, how can we actually compare in an honest way sustainable and non-sustainable business cases? So those that don't, you know, use virgin materials and pollute, no uh, social harm done either, or those that do, by making it very factual, monetize it, as you just discussed, by putting the externalities into the price. And guess what? The average sustainable business case improved in terms of value by more or less 40%. And in case, for instance, food waste, you know, which is, you know, externalities for nothing because in the end it's not even consumed, it's waste, came to around 85% improvement. So it is like if you talk about conscious capitalism and and you relate that to how businesses operate, and this is something I worked on a lot uh, when I worked with the government on this very topic, it's like playing a new game with old rules. The new game being, you know, sustainable capitalism, sustainable uh, business and entrepreneurship, but with rules that actually point into the other direction, which favor the old game and not the new game. I mean, if you only think about that, this year we hit the jackpot with um, the amount of subsidizing on fossil fuel, 7 trillion in a year, 7 trillion. You know what that amount of money stands for? Twice the amount of additional investment we would have to do to achieve the sustainable development goals in 2030. Twice that amount is being put in fossil fuel subsidies. So it's a new game, but all rules, including what we price and what we favor. So it's a system change in the end, what we have to achieve. But you know, business holds the key to solutions here, although we need all stakeholders and we need, of course, governance to work with us on this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So governments tend to work, be slow, right? At least in the States, I noticed that. And they tend to be fragmented and, and kind of leveraging if we, if I, what, what just came to mind when you were just talking, what I'm like, okay, look, the government, and at least from a United, from my perspective in the United States, is it's fragmented and they move very slowly. It's very, very slowly here, and they're not very uh, forward thinking, and they don't, and they they take zero, very, very minimal risk at all. Um, and so you have that as the underpinning of change. You have a game that, to your point, has new game, old rules, and so you have uh, incumbents who have zero incentive to play by the new rules based off of everything we're talking about. How do you see, and, and, and I actually think that tech kind of unlocks the key to this because it forces disruption, right? Whether people like it or not, but, and maybe that's the answer, but my question for you is like, how do you disrupt that game? Because the powers that be aren't going to, are moving too slow. The powers that from a governmental standpoint, from a business standpoint, there's like, you show me someone's incentives, I'll show you the behavior and the incentives are to not change because it affects the bottom line. Yet, if we want to be forward thinking and and really move towards what is necessary for the future in probably every capacity, we need to change how we play the game. How do you answer that? Well, there's no no simple answer to that, obviously, Darius, because otherwise it would would happen already. But I do think that you know we all matter. So what we do as an individual and as a company and as business collectively uh, can achieve a lot more than we tend to think. Let me give you an example. We're just on the threshold to COP28 in Dubai. And then the other day I saw this letter from CEOs. I mean, I'm a bit fed up with all the... So let me give you an example. We're just uh, on the threshold to COP28, you know, the climate convention, this time in Dubai. And then the other day, I think 100 CEOs wrote a letter I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm a bit fed up with all the pledges because we don't want green wishing and green washing, but we want real action. Nevertheless, that was this letter of 100 CEOs. And they wrote together, you know, we are all doing it well and we are, you know, compliant with Paris in 2030 and 50, but we need governments to do a lot of things being point A, B, C, D. Then I think to myself, it all sounds good at first sight. You think, oh, well, those, those points made sense. But then I think, no. You know, if you were with 100 CEOs, and imagine in the world of the 100 largest economies by revenue, actually 69 of those 100 are companies. So imagine the power of business huh? is immense. Why not say with 100 CEOs, governments, we will step up. We will jointly create a fund or we will step up and accelerate and do this or that. And, and, not but, but, and then we expect of you ABC. You know, this is a normal way of doing business, but it's much better than just pledging, oh, we're doing fine and governments, you have to do more. Why not use your power to negotiate some progress out of it? So that's not only lacking in governance is but equally with ceos themselves and, and do you think that like when you start thinking of and i think leadership is key here but when you start thinking of the the weight like you know the actual weight of the status quo we have this weight that's kind of like well this is just how we do it and and you have this progressive way of doing it that changes things cost me more money yeah, maybe it helps the 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 environment. I'll I'll debate that with my own you know scientists, right? And so you have the, that's why I say a weight that's weighing it down saying, yeah, we we don't I mean even like the Paris Accords. I mean like here in the United States it's amazing that people fight it, right? The 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 each administration topsy turvy over it. Yeah, but I the know. reality yeah, it's it, and it's challenging, right? Especially if you're a person that does struggles with people that ignore scientific data, which I happen to, 
Yeah. Usually, these people, usually these folks don't even understand what the scientific process is, right? To understand what they're arguing, right? So there's an ignorance that seems to kind of pervade, right? We have a lot of that happening in pockets throughout the world. But my belief is, and I, I'm sure you're going to agree with this, is that the only way we overcome this is through stronger leadership, enrolling more leaders in, the, in these types of ideology, giving them data to support them, helping know that this will create more, I believe, more profit, and I believe you believe more profit. But how do you get people there? How do we get more leaders in those camps? Because that's the only way we're going to make this change. How do, you, how do you think of that? It's all about leadership. Uh, so developing that leadership and recognizing the people that have not only the talent and the competencies, but also the ideology and the motivation to do what's right to grow. Because in the end of the day, it's people that change errors and, and, and not institutions or organizations. Huh? It's all about, all about the people. So I am, besides, you know, uh, being on boards and, and writing books, and doing speeches about it, I'm also part of a global company which is called Chair Mentors International. And we mentor future CEOs. And we do that for the reason that we want them to, to grow in terms of resilience, knowledge, but we only grow the people that we feel are really future leaders, meaning that they're conscious, sustainable leaders. So that's my way to help with it. And we do that with 85 chairmen around the world, actually. And we do it for large companies mainly um, to really develop those leaders and make them strong, resilient, to keep the courage, to have the endurance, because these things take long. It's not easy done. You know, your average sustainable idea on one day takes seven years before it actually hits the markets. So it takes mm. time. Uh, and that's what we need to do. We need to grow those leaders and we have to set examples. What I do in my books and in my speeches is to add real life business cases. And I do that for a reason, because, you know, it's all great to hear all kinds of theories, assumptions, opinions, but people need stories of things that actually happen so they can see, oh yeah, that company really did it. Uh, when I talk about, for instance, interface that I, they have these projects, climate take back, where they actually use the carbon from the air and put it as a resource in their carpets. And that way of thinking of, of positive impact, then people start to be, to feel empowered. Oh, it actually happens. It's companies that are doing that. Hey, I can see the numbers. That company's doing well. Hey, actually, that company's growing faster than peers that are way less ambitious in terms of sustainability. And that is the proof that people need. If we talk about investments, you talked to me earlier, Darius, and saying, you know, I'm now in private equity or you're planning to do that. I have worked in my board roles a lot in the financial sector, both at big banks or, you know, private equity funds uh, and the likes. And I like that because, you know, have such great proof points. And you can really show that the funds where you, you know, you pushed out um, you know, the ex via exclusion criteria, what you don't want to invest in anymore, and you choose what you do want to invest, and you don't get a lower return. You just don't. It's so it's interesting you just said that because one, like I'll use even my organization, we're, we're raising a pretty large sum of money right now um, to invest in wealth management firms. So our clients that we're trying to buy are wealth management or portfolio companies are wealth management firms. We're trying to buy minority stakes. But one of the things that we look for, which I think you'll appreciate is uh, we call it WAC, willingness, ability, and capacity. And, and what is the willingness? What is the, are they, uh, does the leader of the organization exhibit a learner mentality? Are they open to learning? And for us, if they don't have that, if they don't exhibit that openness to learning, we won't, we will not write a check. So I, I do think that there, and I think that private equity is, you know, again, the, if, if we live in a world and, and I want to get here because your new book is a lot around tech. I believe that we live in a world that's, you know, and I don't care. It doesn't even matter what I believe. The fact, the facts are we live in a world that's changing faster than it's ever changed before. Right. Absolutely. And more and, dimensional. Right. And so that's number one. Number two, and I think one of the reasons why that's happening is because of what I'm about to say, is that it's never been so uh, easy for people to start businesses. There's so much access to information, tools, 
technology is deflationary in nature. I, I mean, I'm 45 years old. I started uh, you know, my first real company when I was 25 years old. And it, it cost me $30,000 just to set my office up. Yeah. I can set up an office right now for $500, maybe even less. No right? threshold anymore. <laughs> right. So the threshold, the, the barrier to entry to starting a business has never been lower. The, the the funding for businesses has never been wider, even though maybe the you know tech's not getting capital like it did three years ago. It's still there's more avenues, incubators, venture capital funds, private equity funds, all these third party capital providers have never been more prevalent than they are today. And I think that that all creates an environment of competitiveness for alpha, competitiveness for for returns on investment. And so when you start to look for stuff like I'm talking about, maybe like yeah. what you're talking about, qualitative differences. And I, you know, in conscious capitalism, we say that lead, as goes the leadership, goes the organization. I look at that and say, well, I want to find the most open-minded, will, capable of learning leader to give my money to. Do you think that that in of itself lends way to creating this environment, like almost organically, and I, I didn't even think about it until I just said it, where the future leaders that get the, the predominance of capital will be the most open-minded, willing-to-learn leaders who then drive the change commercially in the world. Yeah, well, if I were an investor, I would select on open openness and willingness to learn as well, because, you know, it's the best predictor that they will adapt to, you know, rapidly changing environments, which is the case. Uh, we have actually investigated the, you know, the relationship between sustainability and innovation. And it's a chicken and an egg, you know, the more sustainable the company is, the more innovative it is, because it has to be. And the other way around, the more innovative the company is, it tends to be more sustainable. So they both go hand in hand. And it's absolutely crucial. Uh, I see, you know, so many young companies that start with the purpose. And I think that is great and amazing. And those companies should scale up much more because if a company set, starts with a purpose and, you know, tied to that is the whole way of thinking around moonshots, huh? to start, to have the courage to start your thinking with, hey, what's wrong in this world? What needs fixing? What needs to be solved? And then reasoning back to what can I bring as a business as a solution? And guess what? Those markets, uh, and as I called it in my books, the sustainable development growth markets, you know, with solutions to what we desperately need in the world, those growth markets tend to, you know, at least have one and a half times faster growth opportunities than any other. And it makes sense, you know, because these markets open up and the old ones are going to phase down. There's no other way. It's a discussion of when, not if. So, uh, yeah, all those uh, new companies and entrepreneurs and leaders that really tie into that can, uh, can achieve so much more. Do you think that market dynamics will, I mean, when we start thinking, and we were talking about earlier about how do we get more leaders to, to, to want to do this? And, and, and again, this is me just ideating, but I'm like, I, I, there's a saying on Wall Street, which is you don't want to stand in front of a train, a moving train, right? And yeah. the market's the moving train. And and a part of me wants to believe that the velocity of change in the business world is the train that will require the types of leaders that will need to be the types of leaders to create the change. The, the market itself will require that in order to even be competitive. And so do you think that there's a possibility that even, like, even amongst our mo- best high level interests of, you know, creating an ethos around doing good business that the market itself will just demand that you be willing to be on that cutting edge and be a leader that can drive that. And then those types of leaders will have that will just end up there organically without even the like, 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 yes, we can try to force it, but it doesn't matter what we force. The market will demand it in of itself. Uh, Yeah, to a certain extent, that's true. But equally, you know, there is no real free market currently. Huh? I just touched upon the point that we subsidize fossil fuels with $7 trillion this year. So we influence those markets. Right. And we influence them in a, in a more heavy way in the old game than we do in the new game. Take that all out. 
you know, imagine we don't subsidize anything anymore because we always talk about subsidizing, you know, uh, electric cars and all that, but just super minor if you compare it to the other side, only that's not being debated, at least not very often. Take that all out and then there's a real free market, but that's not the case. Um, internalize all the externalities, everything that comes with the price, but it ends up in some shape or form at the taxpayer because nobody's going to pay for it and definitely not the companies that cause it. Uh, yeah, you know, restore all that, you know, price everything, and then it's a fair market. So there's a mm. lot of shortcomings. And if you talk about conscious capitalism, uh, in my definition, you have to bring all those aspects in. And have you done that? Then there's a fair system. There's a new game with new rules, and then it will fly by itself. But now we're holding that train back. You know, you talk about people that are, you know, able to jump on the train. I think that's what you meant. But now we have a zillion people holding the train back. Remove them. And then the train can drive. And then it goes by itself. But then we have to do a lot of changes to do that first. And to my point, when I said, you know, all these CEOs wrote that letter, you know, I was like, Guys, girls, you know, if you want that train to ride, you have to push it and jump in it, but not stand by the sideline. That's not going to help. So let, let's talk about that because, I, again, I think that there's a weight around the incumbents that, that are going to fight tooth and nail. Like if I'm getting $7 trillion of subs- subsidies, I'm not going to let you take those away from me. You know, like, like I'll do everything in my power to stop you from, from that. And, 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 and say that again. I said, and that's being done. Believe me. I mean, the, um, yeah, know the concrete numbers, but the whole lobbying and especially in the U S I'm sorry to say, you know, the, the lobbyists of the big firms is huge. There's a yeah, lot so, of so you, that. So again, you show me your incentives. I'll show you your behavior, right? Let's exactly. talk about what, like, so, so there has to be a force that can get in the way, regardless of the incumbents, regardless of the powers that be. And, you know, I believe that tech has shown its ability to do that, right? So let's talk about that. You have the new book, Tech for Good. You know, imagine solving the world's greatest challenges. Talk about how you believe tech. If we have all these people pulling the train back, the $7 trillion of subsidies for, you know, carbon, you know, or, sorry, for fossil fuels. You know, like that's just one example, but there's probably another thousand examples. Oh, yeah, just a as, lot. Just as, just you know, there's, a, there's a lot of people that have a lot of reason to let this be a problem for the next generation when they're, when they're nothing but dirt in the ground. And so how does tech change that? Let's talk about the book and your beliefs on how tech can actually, yeah. you know, move, the, move well, the needle in the other direction. Yeah, exactly. Well, tech in itself is neutral. Huh? It gets meaning by humans. So... It depends on how we apply it. Tech in itself is not going to come around and do exactly what it's supposed to do in terms of doing good. But coming out of the third industrial revolution and just tiptoeing over the fourth industrial revolution means that now all of a sudden we have this wealth uh, of a wide range of technologies, both physical and digital, that blend and that create huge opportunities for sustainable progress if we apply it as such. And I think that having learned from the consequences of former industrial revolutions, yes, you know, it brought progress to people, but it also came with a huge price to the world and a price we actually cannot afford to pay. Now we have not only the opportunity, but also the responsibility to choose wisely. How are we gonna use tech moving forward? Is it to further deploy the planet and people? Is it for fun or is it to do something really good? Now, these technologies, and in my book, I describe eight groups of those technologies because it's much more complicated than in the past. You know, you have blockchain, AI, robotics, drones, automated vehicles, augmented reality, and so on and so forth. But it's like a huge toolkit for the planet, you could say. If we choose to apply those technologies for good, Meaning that, for instance, we can get to places in the world to bring seeds and medicines where we don't even have to build the infrastructure anymore because drones can do the job, where we can have uh, mini robots and other robots help to do surgery, also in remote areas of the world, where we can have AI, you know, 
uh, create data so that we can perform harvest lost and so on and so forth. There's a zillion examples. If we do that, we can accelerate our progress on these sustainable development goals, which I like to refer to in a way that we couldn't before. So it's positive. We can accelerate our progress. It's also very much needed because imagine if we don't do that, we'll definitely not achieve to mitigate climate change and all these other challenges we have. So we cannot do it without technology. And I think it's super important because technology has such power for bad or for good that we choose to apply it for good jointly and that we really make an effort as business, but also in governance, uh, governments and also scientists to do direct it that way. And that was my reason to write this book, to show to people how big a force for good it can be how wide the variety of technologies is available, how every business sector can apply that for good, because there's 75 business cases in the book, and also that we need to do that. And through doing that, in the process, restore the trust in technology, which is because it's been applied for bad so often and to such high scale, is being restored. I mean, trust in technology is at an all-time low now. What do you, do you, do you, do, well, I have two questions for you. So I'm going to ask you the, the question based on what you just said, and then I have a bigger question uh, based on the book. So the first question is, is trust in technology is an all-time low. It also feels like trust in governments is at an all-time low. You know, there's, there's trust between, you know, communities seems low, depending on the community. And so is this a more macro issue of just the state of the world is less trusting now because of a lot of the, like, it's almost like we're at this 80 years past World War II, there was a rebuilding of the world. Uh, Ray Dalio talks about this in his world, the changing world order, that there's, that that the world goes in these 80 to 120 year cycles. Do you feel like maybe that's part of it as well? It's a logical consequence, I think, of short-termism. You know, if everything's short-term, and that was, of course, a trade of, you know, the shareholder orientation of companies, for instance, and the whole capitalistic system is all very short-term, trust comes with long-term. And in the sense, when you address global challenges, you're automatically long-term orientated. So that, that helps restore trust. So yes, it's a thing that is broader. Uh, but it comes into play very much if you talk about technology. And that's a topic that's now hugely necessary and important. So that's why I zoom in on that. But it is a broader topic. And so so going back to you talked about your book covers eight different areas of technology. Do you mind going through like naming what those are? Yeah, so it's uh, artificial intelligence um, and data. Uh, drones, 3D printing, it's augmented reality, you know, in different stages and forms, autonomous vehicles, it's blockchain, and then probably I forget one, but it's eight different groups. It's not eight technologies, but it's groups of technologies, because within those groups, you have a wide range of variations. And in the book, I describe these because often, you know, if I talk to CEOs or boards, either executive or non-executive, they have very little knowledge about it, but everybody's kind of afraid to say so. Mm-hmm. So I thought it would be good to just, uh, and then the same may be applied to myself, you know, before I did this book, you know, what is this technology actually exactly for? How do we really use blockchain, for instance, and what does it mean? And how can it be applied for good? So there's a, quite a accessible way in the book of explaining the technology and the economics that go along with it. And then it touches upon in which segments can you imagine that's being applied for good and then gives a lot of examples how that is being done by businesses. So, you know, it's, it's interesting what you just said before, though, as you were naming off the technologies. And I'm, I'm like, um, I always joke that I'm an inch deep and a mile wide. So I kind of know a little bit about enough stuff where I can kind of piece things together. Um, when I look at those technology sets, for the most part, not all of them, but but many of them, they're around, you know, and this is probably a, a obvious statement. Like technologies, when I think of technology, it's like we take something and we make it faster and easier. Uh, take a good process and make it faster and easier, right? Um, 
take a, a, a tool and make it do more with less, right? So there's, this, again, this natural deflationary uh, component of technology where you can do more with less, more produ- more productivity. Um, and so when I look at that, I think, great, There's the, we would call that progress. And I think probably for the last, I don't know, let's call it, you know, 50 to 80 years, you've had this very, a ton of inefficiencies in the world that technology has been able to go inside of and, and remove those the fat, remove the inefficiency, and there's value creation when that happens, right? And maybe one could argue that's that'll always be an efficient case, use case, that there's always going to be inefficiencies that technology can remove from the system. But I also think that there's this perspective, at least I have a perspective, that that we're leveraging technology to overcome the shortcomings of humans, right? The shortcomings of the humans, uh, of a human hand, of a human thought, of a human, it's, it's augmenting human behavior, right? Augmenting human productivity. And so there comes a, to a point though, where where the, you could actually have a negative reaction to that because if technology is taking over everything, then what do the humans do, right? And so I guess it's a long-winded way of me saying are we hitting a point in time? And this is when we were talking about technology being dangerous, where in the past it was just to speed up a good process and you would get value creation out of it. To now it's where, well, I don't need humans. I can just have technology do everything. But yet we still have 7.8 billion people here that need to do something. How do you overcome that when we think about technology being the source of good? Yeah, well, I think um, by definition, you know, we shouldn't fear things, but we should face things. Because with fearing, the things don't disappear. Uh, 25% of uh, the professions will be impacted by technology now. And as you said, it's transformational technology, and it will mean that technology, that AI is going to take over some part, and that humans have to do other things. I mean, there's certain things humans, per definition, are really good at, and there's certain things that technology can do much better when humans are less good at. So that's going to be a new interaction between humans and technology for sure. This is not necessarily a bad thing because the amount of jobs that will be there, um, let's say after this industrial revolution is larger than prior. So the need for this, for jobs in terms of types of roles and quantitative is bigger than before. So there's no quantitative fear needed but of course, you know, it all comes down to, are we going to anticipate? Are we going to train people for the professions we need in the future? Or can we continue to educate for the past? So to give you a very simple example, we want this shift to renewable energy. So we're putting wind parks everywhere, but now we desperately lack people that are able to maintain them because we didn't anticipate that. So it's about that, you know, it's about anticipating, about making sure to train people to have an eye on what professions are needed in the future, base our education system on that, and make sure that we all get through the shift. Um, that's the only way to do it. So I, I appreciate that. And I think that that probably, you know, to your point, new new solutions create new problems to solve, right? And, and I think exactly. that having... A, having faith in the fact that in a world of growing complexity that's changing faster, you're creating new problem sets that need solving and, and we are the solvers. I guess assuming that AI does not become sentient and solve its, solve its own problems, right? Which it probably could to a certain degree. Um, but but we'll, I guess time will tell on that. So when you start thinking of who this book was written for, and you, and you mentioned it earlier, but when you, if I was to say, hey, you know, Marga, who needs to read this book so that they can be more prepared for the business world we're walking into? Who's the, who's your ideal reader and why should they be reading this book? In a way, it's similar to the trillion dollar shift. And I noticed when I made that book, I first said I focus it on higher business people, uh, professionals, uh, CEOs, entrepreneurs, uh, business school students, and so on. And then later I found out that actually the book, which became a bestseller, had a much more broader audience because it's accessible. And, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a browse book. You can read the parts that are really important to you. And I think the same applies to Deck for Good. So everybody that's interested in how do we um, change for the better with the help of technology is a potential reader. Um, it's, it's an accessible book. It's an inspirational book. 
um, if you know a lot about technology already, it's still an interesting book because then it, you know, focuses on, but how do we use those technologies for good? Mm. And how does it look like? If you know a lot about sustainability and less about technology, it's very interesting because it talks about sustainability, but how does technology come into play? Um, so it's a wide audience, and I've noticed that for my former book as well. You know, it's interesting there is if you write such a book, which takes three years, my books tend to take three years because I want thorough studies done. I want research done. I want case studies in. It's not, you know, like your novelist kind of business book. And then after you've written it, for me as an author comes the most interesting moment because then you think, okay, what did I actually want to achieve? What is lying behind all the content or what is overarching all the content? And that made me add one page per chapter. And that page is called Imagine It. That's where how the subtitle came about because I thought there's so much doom and gloom in the world. There's so many people desperate. People lose hope. I want this book also to be a positive book and to, yeah, maybe even be a book of hope. And that's why I called it Imagine Technology for Good, Solving the World's Greatest Challenges. And each chapter starts with a page about imagining. I want people to find the courage to imagine what is possible and not dwell only on what is not possible. If you imagine that we can restore our coral reefs that otherwise would disappear without a decades by 90%, that we can restore them by 3D printing, which is so good that the animal ecosystem doesn't recognize it as artificial. And so also the wildlife is being um, restored that we have such great technologies that we can bring seeds, medicines to remote areas, that we can, you know, help people in surgeries, that we can prevent harvest loss and all that. And you imagine what we can do, then hopefully people find way more courage to actually do it. I love that. I'm so excited for this book. Uh, so uh, before we tell everyone where they can get the book, um, which is I'm going to give you the title for the audience. So, and we'll put this all in the show notes. It's the tech for good. Imagine solving the world's greatest challenges. Um, we're going to do the greatness question, but before we do that, why don't you tell everyone where they can get the book? It's coming out November 29th. What, where, if folks that are interested in getting a copy of the book or they want to connect with you, what would be the best way for them to do that? And then we'll, we'll do the greatness question right after. Well, to connect with me, it's easy through my website, which is simply my name, marthahook.com. There you can find the book and you can find the button where to order it. You can follow me on LinkedIn. I share a lot of my thought leadership on LinkedIn in newsletters. So subscribe to my newsletter and uh, follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and definitely have a look at the website. I share a lot of content there. Fantastic. And so we'll make sure we put that in the show notes. So listeners, uh, you can check it out. We'll put all the links in the show in the show notes. Uh, we always like to do that. And we'll be sure to actually promote this, uh, bu- this during the your book launch on the 29th. Uh, with that said, though, I wanted to go to the greatness question. So what is the number one barrier to creating greatness that you've overcome in your life? And how did you overcome it? I think inner fear and insecurity is in the end the greatest barrier. You have to have the courage to do what you believe in. Often that means, you know, uh, having an ambition or setting an objective as a CEO or in any other kind of leadership role. And at the point that you have the ambition, you have actually no clue how to achieve it. So dealing with insecurity and fear is something you learn through life. And... If you overcome that, if you don't let that hold you back, you can do great things. I think that's the most important thing. I love that. Marga, so much gratitude from here at The Greatness Machine. I'm so excited for this book. For all the pleasure to talk with you, Darius. I love the conversation. I, I did as well. Um, audience, go support Marga and her book. Check her out on social media. We'll put all that in the show notes. Until next time, peace out. We love you. You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen, if you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We have tons of great people coming on, and we're, we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. 
leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode, you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. Appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.